left. Yes. All right. Welcome, everyone. Glad that you're here this evening. Feels like you can hear me breathe quite a bit. Is that better? Perfect. All right. Wednesday's always a, a busy day, and it is always encouraging to me to be able to come here at the end of a busy day and be with people that I love, people that are trying to get to heaven and uh, spend some time in study. So it's really a, a, rejoy- a refreshing time for me to be here Wednesday. I hope it is for you as well. Let's open with a word of prayer this evening. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to be here tonight, for this opportunity to be with our family and to spend time together encouraging one another and studying your word. I pray that you'll bless this time of Bible study and bless what we talk about, that we can learn what you would have us to learn, that we can draw closer to you, and that we can be uh, more like Jesus each and every day. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be ending up around Exodus chapter 5. If you want to be turning there, um, just as an update, because a few of you have asked, my mom is home and doing very well. Uh, she's two weeks since her big colon surgery, abdominal surgery, and I know she's doing well because now she's stubborn and mad that we won't let her go mow the grass. She's two weeks. I mean, she just had 50 staples taken out today, and she wanted to go home and mow the grass with a push mower. So she's feeling better. Yes. And then my daughter is going to go, she made her some homemade banana pudding and is going to visit her tomorrow. So she is doing very well. And some of you asked about my other daughter. Her and her husband got home Saturday and uh, they loved Alaska. They said it was so nice that it was cool and rainy. And I said, well, you should move here because you'll get a fair dose of it. So, uh, but they went back to 95 degree heat. So. If you've seen parts of the, the nation that are really struggling right now, in Nashville, the heat index was 114 today for a brief period of time. So I am grateful that I don't feel like I walked through a shower each time I get out of the car and come in a building. So that's kind of nice. All right, Exodus. So we are now to the point to where Moses is going to return to Egypt. And he's going to talk to Pharaoh. God has given him instructions. And so he shows up in in Exodus chapter 5, he comes back, and we give Moses a hard time right at the burning bush. He makes these excuses, but I also try to remember the human side. He's about to go approach the most powerful man on earth at that time, right, from an earthly standpoint, the ruler of the largest nation, the largest army. And you think about if someone said, you know, tomorrow you have to go preach the gospel to the president or the president of China or the president of Russia, we probably would be like Moses and be a little hesitant. So sometimes we get pretty hard on people when we read this story and we remove the human side of, I'm going to stand before somebody that literally can say, I don't like what you're saying, you need to die, and they kill me. And that's what Moses had. So, so maybe I need to ease up a little on how hard I am on Moses on his excuses. But he does go back, and the, what's the first thing he asks Pharaoh when he goes back? What does he ask for? Um, well, and not exactly to let them go completely. You're right, let my people go 
Right, into the, somebody said it worship, right? Let's go let us go into the wilderness. Let us spend 3 days. We're going to worship our God. And Pharaoh's response is Your God? Who's your God? I don't know who that God is. I don't know who that God. Why would I let you go worship some guy is that even a God? He kind of belittles God, the Lord. But did Moses expect that? Yeah, I mean, God had told him, this is what's about to happen. Um, And what's Pharaoh's response then to the Israelites? Yeah, go back to work. And, yeah, you know, it's, it's, you must be working pretty hard. I'm going to give you some extra days off. You know what, maybe we need to make life a little easier on you, right? No, Pharaoh says, if you want to worship, you must be idle. You must have too much time on your hands. So let's, uh, let's make it a little tougher on you. You're no longer going to have the straw you need to help build the bricks you're building for me. We're going to make life harder on you. And at some point, he actually increases the quota of what they have to build as well. So we hit on this a little bit last week, and I want to make sure we start here. Why does God allow this to happen? Why does he allow Pharaoh to not just say no, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it harder on you, and I don't know who this God is, and I don't know what you're asking for. You must have too much freedom. Why does he allow it to play out that way? Ooh, that's what Tony said, to teach them who he is. Teach who? Who is them there? The Hebrews, I would agree with that. And the Egyptians, I would agree with that. God says, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm doing it so that you know who I am. You know what I'm going to do. So in in Exodus chapter 6, I want to read a short section of verses. And I want you to notice where God says repeatedly, I will meaning God will, not, not I will, not Moses, will, I will. So Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord of your God. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Those are some pretty powerful statements there. God wants there to be no doubt, no doubt about who's about to deliver them. And we talked about it last week. See, there's a danger. Oh, you know what? The Israelites were now several million people, right? We know that based off what the Bible tells us. Several million people. We could defeat the Egyptians, so let's rise up against them and let's beat them in a battle, and we've won our freedom. No, that's not what God wants. Oh, you know what? Moses is this wonderful speaker, and Moses is going to deliver us. Moses, We're going to follow him because Moses is going to deliver us because of his diplomatic powers. No, that's not what God wanted. Pharaoh's going to just be this nice guy, decide that slavery is wrong, and I'm going to let the Israelites go. No. God wanted to make it clear, I, God, am going to deliver you. Not Moses, 
Not Pharaoh, not yourselves, not an army, not policy, not diplomacy. I am going to deliver you. I am going to give, deliver you. And he says in, um, there at the end of those verses, so you will know that I'm God. And then he says in Exodus 7, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I mean, he has a purpose behind this. You're going to know that I am God. I delivered you. You're not going to think you did it yourself. You're not going to think you won it. You're not going to think it was luck. You're not going to. You're going to go. There is no other way to explain this other than God, Tracy. Yes, and now the largest nation, most powerful nation in the world, is going to go. That's God. Think about that. At the end of these few verses, between five and ten million people are going to say, "That's God." Wow. You know, and, and it's it's not, boy, those Israelites are pretty good people. They Look at how they beat us. Nope, that's God. You think about that. You know, that's the statement. Pharaoh to his people was, was a god. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians are going to say, no, that, that's not God. That, that's God, the one who did what he said he was going to do. God wanted it to be clear God was going to give deliverance. And the lesson there is, God is the only one that can really give deliverance. In our case, God is the only one that can give salvation. And if we're not careful, we may be in danger of the same thing the Israelites were in danger of. Look at what we accomplished. Look at what we did. You see, as a Christian, I live such a good life, God's going to let me into heaven. Right? See, as a Christian... I did everything God asked of me, and I'm so glad I'm saved because I did. Look at what I accomplished. Look Now, are we to live a certain way? Yes, but all of us are going to fall short. Am I going to be in heaven because of the life I've lived? That's an incomplete statement. I'm going to be in heaven because of the life I've lived and because of what Christ did. If you take that part out. So we have to recognize salvation, deliverance, is always because of God. We're, we could be in danger of the same thing, right? And, and, and we see that. You know, when I, when I die, I deserve to go to heaven for what I've done. Oh, no, no, no. You know where I deserve to go for what I've done? Yeah, it's hell. And I hope I don't offend you when I say you do too. Every one of us should be in hell. The Israelites deserve to die in Egypt. But none of us will, and they didn't either because of what God did. Uh, And that's the lesson there. Um, Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Israel can't boast about how they got their freedom from Egypt other than boasting in God. Israel can't boast about what they did other than boasting in what God did. And that's our lesson. You know, that's, man, I've lived a Christian life. I am so glad I've earned my way to heaven. Ooh. And I've heard people talk about, I've lived, I've lived a good enough life that God's going to let me into heaven. I've heard people pray that. We pray that we lived a good enough life that we, you will welcome us into heaven. I want to be in heaven one day. It will not be, be because of my own righteousness. Only God can give salvation. Only God can give deliverance. We do have to live for God. But if it's going to be based off of what I did, I'm going to come up short. But luckily it's not. Luckily, the Israelites didn't have their fate based upon what they did, right? Um, 
the other thing, you know, we talk about the Israelites are here under Egypt. And God doesn't just say, I'm going to make sure you know I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to make your life pretty miserable. In fact, it's going to be the most miserable it's been. Why would he do that? You're going to be slaves. Your labor is going to be hard. It's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse. They're going to treat you bad. Why in the world is God making them miserable? Tony? Yeah. You, yeah, Tony says God's showing them their own reality. It's impossibility for them to save themselves. Israel, if you do what you're going to do, you're going to die here as slaves. That's the only outcome. Life is miserable here. You think you might want something better? You think you might think back to that promised land I promised your fathers and your grandfathers? Do you want to be delivered? So has Israel always had it that way when they went to Egypt? From day one, did Israel go in and they were miserable in Egypt? No. They had it pretty well in Egypt. They had it really well in Egypt. Anything they wanted or needed, the best land, their leader was the second in charge of the most powerful nation in the world. Why would you ever want to change that? Let's just let's just sit back and really enjoy Egypt. Isn't that what you want to do? What who needs the promised land? God doesn't have to deliver us. We've got Egypt. And we can do that. We talked about that. We can do that. I mean, this life is pretty good. I've got a wife, and I've got kids, and pretty good family, and pretty good health, and I've got a good job, and we get to vacation. Why would I want to give that up? Well, maybe God's going, you know what, Stephen, if you feel that way, maybe I need to not let you have some of those things for you to long to be with me in heaven. There is a promised land waiting for me. And if I'm not careful, I think that that's retirement in America, right? My promised land is when I hit whatever age, 50, 60, 70, 80, and go, whoo, I've earned retirement. God's going, no, no, no. i got a promised land waiting for you. I've got something better. And there's several times where he has to tell the Israelites, this is not the promised land. This great land you got in Egypt, that wasn't my plan. We didn't plan for you to come to Egypt and rest here. We came for you to come to Egypt so that I can deliver you to the promised land. And as Christians, we have to always be thinking about, it's the promised land is the goal, right? My goal is not here on this earth. It's supposed to be looking to the future. So Israel needed to recognize their need for deliverance. And they needed to recognize, as Tony said, they couldn't do it themselves, right? They could not do it themselves. Um, and, I, and I think as a church sometimes we need to make sure we remind ourselves I hope we don't forget this but we need to remind ourselves we had to be delivered I had a discussion one time with a gentleman and it it resonated with me I was younger he was he had been a Christian longer and he said when he became a Christian I forgot if he said at age 11 or 12 so he had grown up in the church his parents were Christians he had been a Christian for 50 years He said one of the dangers he realized early in his life is he never felt like he was lost. Right? He never felt like that he really needed to be baptized. He hadn't done anything wrong. I'm being baptized because I want to go to heaven. But did you ever feel like you had sinned? Well, yeah. And he said he struggled with that until he realized, wait a minute. 
I was lost. And until we recognized that my sin had me headed to hell the same as the same as the the guy who shows up in the sex registry and the guy who shows up in the history books that slaughtered 10 million people and the guy that is down on the street drunk and addicted and my sin was sending me to hell too. And if we're not careful as Christians, we view our lives as pretty good lives. So we didn't need a deliverer, right? I mean, I don't need to be delivered from my sin because eh, I'm a pretty good guy. Right? And I've seen a lot of Christians who take that approach. Well, it wasn't like I was a bad sinner before I came. Is there such thing as a good one? Right? I picked in, I was only doing these sins. I mean, I don't, you know, right? And so I, I think Israel needed to recognize their need for a deliverer. And sometimes we have to be reminded that we were also in need of a deliverer. Even if we think we've lived a pretty good life. Even if I, mean, I became a Christian when I was 11. Good for you. Isn't that great that you had a family and you had that opportunity? But sometimes what I see is the person who became a Christian later in life is a much different Christian because they realized their need for a Savior. They realized they were lost when they said, I was lost and I need to be saved. Not, I'm a member of the church and need to be baptized. And I'm not doubting anybody's motivation. I grew up with two parents, four sets or two sets of grandparents that were all Christians. And there was a time in my life as a teenager where I said, oh, did I ever really feel like I was lost? Yes, I did. That's why I became a Christian. Rather than I became, uh-huh. everybody becomes a Christian because that's what we do. We want to go to heaven. If you never felt like you were lost, you would never feel like you need a deliverer. And if you don't feel like you need to deliver, then what Jesus did on the cross was a waste. So we have to be careful that our pride doesn't say, well, I didn't need that. I didn't live like them. God says to the Israelites, I'm going to make sure you know who I am and that you know I'm the one that's going to deliver you. And that you want to be delivered because there is a promised land waiting on you. Um, I think about the uh, Apostle Paul when he was Saul, did he think he was doing anything wrong? Mm-mm. He thought he was doing that. I'm standing up for God. He didn't need to be saved. He didn't need to be baptized. He didn't need to become a Christian. He wasn't doing anything wrong. And what did God do to him? Okay. <laughs> okay. You're not going to get it on your own. I'm going to get it for you, aren't I? You know, he blinds him on the road. He brings him from this prideful state down to this yeah, you can't even get around without somebody holding your hand. I'm going to talk to you directly, and I'm going to make sure you know who that I am. You think Paul realized he needed a deliverer? You think he realized he needed to be saved? Yeah, he did, because look at what he did. Yeah. And so, I always worry that if I don't recognize it on my own, God's going to say, okay, Stephen, I gave you a chance to humble yourself and to realize you needed me. If you're not willing to do it, I'm going to do it for you. I promise you when God does it, it is not pleasant. Right? The Israelites weren't enjoying this. The Apostle Paul didn't enjoy being blind for several days. Right? So, all right. Um, oh, the other, one I had, <laughs> the other one I had written in here, and this one we won't talk about long. We, we can, but um, the Israelites are going to recognize him as God. The Egyptians are going to recognize him as God. Pharaoh is going to recognize You know... I'm going to give you a secret. This is the secret. Eventually, 
everybody is going to recognize him as God. Right. Eventually, everybody's going to bow. In fact, I think I've read that somewhere, right? Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess in Philippians, right? Philippians 2. Um, God does not want robot followers. He didn't create people that blindly, I love God, I follow God. That's not what God wanted. God wanted a relationship with people that love him that he loves. And so eventually, everybody is going to recognize it. The unfortunate part is, for many, it will be too late. But I'm going to give you the secret. Eventually, everybody recognizes God as the Lord. There's not going to be anybody who doubts it one day. So, The other lesson I had written down was in the end, God wins, but we don't have to go through that. That's just a great, a great thing to think about. Okay, so we're getting into the plagues, uh, Exodus chapter 7. Any comments, questions, laments, interjections before we move on? Okay. Um, the plague. So Moses goes before Pharaoh, and God has given him some powers, some miraculous powers, and he does some signs. And I want to make sure that we don't say he does some tricks. That is not... Moses doesn't learn sleight-of-hand tricks here. He doesn't learn how to make his, a snake stand like a, a staff and then a staff, and then drop it on the ground. It becomes his. Moses performs miracles through the power of God. With the staff, with his hand in leprosy, he does several things in a row, okay? Uh, he pours water on the ground, it turns to blood, and all of these signs are done before Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh's magicians are able to copy some of them, uh, right? They were able to bring in snakes that look like a staff and drop it on the ground and it becomes a snake. Of course, when they do that, what does Moses' staff do? Yeah, shoom, shoom, shoom. At that point, I'd have gone, uh, all right, you win, but they don't, you know, they... But there's a, a term that I want to talk about that we see repeatedly. And it's a term that I've struggled with, but as I've gotten older, I've started to understand it better. We're going to see God talk about when you go talk to Pharaoh, he's not going to let you, your people go because what is God going to do? Hardened Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean? Does that mean God caused Pharaoh to sin? So what does it mean? It's a tough one, I'll admit. So, God prevented him from letting the people go? Isn't that a sin? Tony, go ahead. I saw your hand. God, Tony says one of the things he does to harden your heart is he just pulls away. Um, oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. He pulls back and he allows us to do what may be our own desires, I think is the word I heard you say. Um, I think of the story of Judas. Okay. Did Satan cause Judas to sin? No. But we see that Satan entered Judas's heart. Right. God did not cause Pharaoh to sin, but God hardened his heart. What he's doing there is allowing our desires. He says, I'm not going to protect you anymore. I'm not going to help you. You've already allowed Satan to get close to your heart. You've already allowed yourself to have a heart that is hard. You're already that type of person. That's your will. That's your inclination. That's your desire. Have at it. God doesn't cause anybody to sin. We're told that. 
point blank, right, in James. But he will allow us to give in to our own desires. He will back up and say, go ahead, Tony, did I see your hand? Right. God was closer to Pharaoh, right? He had God's presence through Moses. It was right here. Uh, Judas was right next to Jesus, the son of God. And yet they both still ended up. You can tell what type of people they are. Well, Pharaoh compares himself to a God. He makes fun of God. He lies. He goes back on his word. Judas was stealing money from the treasury of the apostles. These weren't good people who God said, oh, You're a really good Pharaoh. You're a really good king, but I need you to sin. I need you to mess up. Right? God didn't make any of them sin. Satan didn't make Judas sin. But he used a heart that allowed him in. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The lesson there is, and and you may think this is a stupid point, but I want to talk about it. No one ever makes us sin. You say, well, of course not. Well, let's talk about that. Um, do we ever, can you ever think of sins that we blame on others? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they, yeah, I, I was watching, looking on Facebook the other day. I'm a good person, but if you ever touch my kids, you'll see that I, oh, so it's okay if they hurt my kids for me to sin. I'm not saying we shouldn't defend our kids, but oh yeah, you provo- I, they they were arguing with me. What do you expect me to do? Oh, obviously I expect you to hit them. That's the right response when they were arguing with right, or argue back, or let your pride get the best of you, or cause a division. Right? Other people don't make us sin. Well, she dressed that way, and that caused me to lust. No, 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 no. That was when I was taught, you know, Stephen, men can't help it. When women dress that way, they should know better. They may should know better, but I'm not an animal. I can't help it. But we do that all the time. We teach that to our kids. We, we may not mean to, but we teach that to our kids all the time. Well, you know, if she wears a two-piece bikini, what did you expect? I expected the man to act like a Christian. That's what I expected. Why would I expect anything different because of what someone else is doing? Right? Well, I was working at the bank, and they were all stealing money. I stole it, too. No, we wouldn't accept that in any other situation, but somehow we want to blame. Well, and then what we do is we then start blaming the wrong things, and we teach against it. So we make things sinful that are not in and of themselves intrinsically sinful. So we teach our kids, and this is going to hurt some feelings here, and it may raise some ire, but, well, dancing's a sin. So why is it, this is, a, this is what my brother used to say, why is it we teach against premarital sex? Because it may lead to dancing. I mean, that, we sometimes get the sin wrong, don't we, right? Dancing's not a sin. Dancing is not sinful. Is there dancing that is sinful? Sure. But what we do is we say dancing's a sin because you might lust. Well, how about we say let's not lust? How about we say let's not dance in a crude way, right? Instead, we teach our kids that dancing's a sin, and then they get older and go, dancing isn't a sin. And if they lied to me about that, what else did they lie to me about? And we wonder why our kids at age 18 or 20 or 22 start questioning everything we taught them. Because we lied to them. Right? Mixed bathing is a sin. I mean, I grew up that 
if I go swimming with women, I may literally go to hell right there. The, the, the water may open up and I end up in hell. Mixed bathing is a sin. How about we teach about modesty? How about we teach about lust? How about we teach things so that mixed bathing isn't a sin? You may say, well, Stephen, that doesn't mean we should tempt our kids. I'm not saying we take teenagers and let them go uncontrolled because I remember being a teenager, right? But we don't teach against things that are not in and of themselves sinful. I was told if I went to a pool hall, that was a sin, right? Because people might be gambling. They might be gambling. And then when I get older, I started looking at my parents going, Either you're stupid or you're lying. And you may say, that's disrespectful. How do you expect a 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old to act? Why are we losing our kids? Because we teach them the wrong things about sin. And then when they get older and start questioning it, they start questioning everything because we lied to them about that. That means we're going to lie to them about something else. And so maybe it doesn't matter if I live with my girlfriend before we get married. Right? Because if dancing's not a sin and mixed bathing's not a sin and shooting pool's not a sin, and as my dad was taught, playing a hand of cards... He would play Uno and Skip Bow, but he wouldn't play with the real deck of cards because people gamble on those, and that's a sin. So sometimes we focus on the wrong things, right? Sometimes we call things sin that aren't sin, and then we wonder why our kids start going, I don't know that I want to be a part of that when I get older. And that may not be fair, but you're talking about teaching 12 and 15 and 20 and 25-year-old people that are immature and aren't thinking clearly and they view their parents and people at church as these very righteous people and then they realize they were lied to and then they start to question everything maybe if we maybe if we preached against sin maybe if we preached on modesty you know i wrote down um our world has a sin problem not a dancing problem we have a modesty problem not a swimming problem we have an immorality and body worship problem, not a short shorts problem. Maybe if we t- preached on lust and modesty and self-control and sexual immorality and said, oh, you're going to go line dancing? at the, You know, I don't know that that's the best thing, but I don't guess there's anything wrong with line dancing, but do you think that's where you should be? You, I can remember the first time I saw a square dance at a, at a rodeo and I thought, why did my dad think this is sinful? It's kind of stupid, but it's not sinful. And then I start again, and you think, oh, Steve, yeah. And your kids are doing it too. They're thinking, if they call that sinful, does it matter if I say OMG in my text message or not? Does it matter if I'm sexually active before I'm married? Because is it just the, are they just saying that the same way that they're saying it about dancing and about swimming? And, and so maybe we teach on sin we call sin sin and maybe we talk about temptation and we talk about avoiding temptation did you ever have this one you can't eat in a restaurant that serves alcohol now we don't say that anymore because you couldn't eat anywhere except for maybe like mcdonald's but you can't eat in the bar can you right because if you eat in the bar Somebody might see you, and this is the argument that we make, and if they see you, you might cause them to stumble. That makes it a sin to eat in the bar. But, oh, by the way, if you're going to get drunk, if you'll just sit over in the booth, not in the bar, it's okay if you drink over there and get drunk as can be. But don't do it in the bar, even though you might be drinking a Diet Coke, right? We teach against the wrong things. We focus on the wrong things. We make things sin. And that is no different than the Jews did. On the Sabbath, you can't do work, Okay. But then the Jews say you can't walk X number of feet, you can't carry X number of sticks, you can't do X number. That was them. That wasn't God. 
you can't go line dancing, you can't square dance, and you can't swim. That what if what if a female's in the other side of the lake? You might die when you get in that water because you're in the same water as a female, right? Well, what if you eat in the bar and somebody sees you and now they're an alcoholic? You're going to hell for making them an alcoholic. No, no, I'm not. No, how about we we teach about alcoholism? Maybe. And don't even get me started about whether a drink of alcohol is sinful. I won't open that can of worms or not. So. Yes. They've been married 25 years and they felt guilty dancing. I can be naked in bed and have sex with them. I know this is recorded. I apologize. But I can't dance with them closed in my living room. My husband and wife. Because we taught dancing was the sin instead of teaching that sexual immorality is the sin. So the thought was we often teach our kids, and this is what I would say Christianity does a lot, is what you can't do. You can't do this. And so here's the list. You can't murder. Okay. You can't steal. Can't commit adultery. You can't dance. You can't drink. You can't gamble. You can't play cards. You can't mix bathe. Do you really think all of those should be on that list, and do you really think they're equal? Right? And so you have people that get point in life, and they go, that was wrong. You know, so you're using the example of a husband and wife been married 25 years and she felt guilty dancing with her husband in her living room. What? But I've been there. I mean, I, I can tell you dancing is... Now, you may think, Stephen, I bet your kids did everything. Actually, I'm very blessed. The Lord has helped me raise my kids. But what I did is had more open conversations. I can't tell you that dancing is a sin but I can tell you that there are some types of dancing that is sinful and I can also tell you because I had two girls and I had to tell them what a boy thinks differently than a girl thinks and my wife would sit there and go he's right it sounds stupid but he's right you know and, it, and she would say it took me 15 years of marriage to realize that and so I'm very blessed that my kids didn't do those things but it's not because I said if you go to pool hall you're sinning if you swim in a swimming pool and there's boys there you're sinning what I said is, how about we wear something modest enough that we don't have to worry about this? Ooh, now there's an approach. You know, how about we, we deal with being holy? Maybe we talk about holiness for our kids and what holiness and the rewards of being a Christian and what that means rather than don't murder, don't steal, don't dance because they're all equal, right? And then wonder why our kids at some point, you know, why are we losing our kids? Because we teach them falsely. And they realize it. Kids aren't stupid. They are not stupid. They can read this Bible and they're going to hear about it. And the first time they say something that is wrong to their friends and their friends point it out and they're going to go, oh, man. 
oh man, maybe I need to reconsider whether I listen to anybody at church. And you don't think that happens? Where are our kids going when they graduate? So maybe we teach them the joys of Christianity, holiness. We teach them modesty. We teach them self-control instead of a big list of things you can't do. All right. How in the world do we get from Israelites to dancing? But it's still a good conversation. Okay, uh, let's see where we are. No, we're okay. All right. So uh, the plagues, we are not going to go through each one, but I'm happy to discuss each. I'm going to talk about them briefly. I'm happy to open up and discuss anything you want to about the plagues. Um, I don't have some magic. These are about certain elements, and God was doing this about certain Egyptian gods. Um, because I'm not sure all of those evaluations are necessarily true. Here's what I'll tell you I know about the plagues. God did them. He is powerful enough to do any and all of them, and that's what he wanted them to realize. Was he specifically addressing the Egyptian gods? I've heard that. I don't know if you've heard that story, and, and that's great, but they had over 400 gods, and we see 10 plagues. Did he do them in a certain order to show? Maybe so. We don't know that, and so I don't want to read anything to the Scripture that's not there but I do know that he did them. Right? It was about God doing them. It was about God's power. Right? Um, and so we see these. We're going to talk about the first nine kind of as a group as we go through. We're going to save the tenth one because uh, we're going to spend some time there, of course, uh, probably next week. Um, so when we get into the specific plagues, these are not the first miracles that Moses does, but now we're talking about the specific plagues. So what's the first one? Blood. Right, water to blood. It turns the Nile River into blood. Uh, it is able to be copied initially by the magicians uh, in Egypt. It lasts about seven days, and this is where we first see the phrase of what God uh, did throughout the plagues. Uh, God hardened. He said he's going to, but now he said God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he does not let the people go. Second one, frogs. Um, they could eat well, frog legs, but otherwise this is not a good plague, right? Um, my wife thinks this is this is not the worst for her, but she is not a reptile. Of course, we don't have reptiles in... Do we have reptiles in Alaska? Oh, amphibians. Good point. Do we have amphibians in Alaska? <laughs> we have frogs. Okay, good. I know we don't have, like, snakes, and that's why I moved here. Snakes are from the devil. We see it in Genesis, right? Can't stand them. <laughs> All right. Um, Pharaoh promises after the frogs, if you get rid of them, I'm going to let your people go. They get rid of him. Pharaoh goes back on his promise. Again, we're seeing the nature of Pharaoh. He has no intent to, to give in. He's a dishonest person. He thinks he can get away with anything, right? So Pharaoh goes against his promise. The third one? Yeah, gnats are the third one. And there's a difference between gnats and flies. I, don't, I guess gnats are small. Flies are big. Up here in Alaska, flies can be the size of a bird, I guess. Mosquitoes certainly can be. Uh, we get the gnats. And this is the first one where the magicians go... I'm out, Pharaoh. I can't do this. I don't know how he did it. I don't know why. It's, it's something I can't copy. Uh, the magicians are the first ones in this process to go, Pharaoh, this is God. Yeah. This, is, this is from God. The physicians get it on plague number three. Had Pharaoh gotten it on plague number three, things would have been a little different, but they don't. Pharaoh, uh, God, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Now, this time it's not that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says it gets back to what the nature of Pharaoh's heart. And you said that, Tony, too. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Number four is the flies. And this is where God now separates the Israelites, no flies. The Egyptians, flies. Um, 
Pharaoh said he would let them go to give a sacrifice and to worship. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. He lies again and says he hardened his heart. Number five, we start to really up the ante. What's number five? After the gnats and the flies. Yeah, Pharaoh kills off the livestock. And this is not a few. This is not a few thousand. This is not tens of thousands. Likely in a land that most countries would have had more livestock than they had people. When you think about the sustenance. and So you're probably talking uh, somewhere in the 10 to 20 million animal range. Okay. Uh, the stink and the rot and the decay would have been impressive. Um, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Number six. Yeah, now we're beyond what's going on around us to the boils, the sores. This is the one for me where it really starts to get, oh, because I don't know if you've ever had one of those bumps or your tooth hurts or a spot that's rubbed wrong, and it's like everything I do, I just know, you know, if I take a step, I've got a blister on my toe or something, and I take a step, it's there, it's there, it's there. Now imagine you have 50 of those on your body or 100 of those on your body. You'd just be miserable. I think of the story of Job and how miserable he was. And then I think there's 10 million people, 5 million people that way. Um, The magicians couldn't even stand to come before Pharaoh and tell him this is from God anymore. Now they can't even come and tell him how bad this is. Um, Number seven. Uh, Jerry, yeah. Sure. You know, that's a great question. We have a few of them. Go ahead. Go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, mm-hmm. right. And so, that's a good point. So, first of all, Israel's livestock wasn't killed. You, you, right. You know that. Right. Um, this is what I would say. First of all, Egypt is a pretty powerful nation, so they certainly could have taken or gone from somewhere else. Second of all, I don't know that when the livestock died that this is a 100% wipeout, and that's, that, that is a good point. It may not have been. It may have been, look, I killed a million livestock, and there's still four million left. I don't know the answer to that. I also don't know the time frame. That's what Jerry's asking. What's the time frame between the plagues? And I don't know that we have any indication. My guess is it's not a day or two. My guess is, to be honest, this is a one-year process, ten plagues, because the, the, the blood in the water lasted seven days, and then it goes away, and there's a period of time where Moses is gone. That, I don't know, Jerry, I don't know if you have any indication, Tony, yeah. Um, because you also have the seasons. You see, right, the barley and the flax and that sort of things would have, at different times of the year would have been destroyed by the hail and the locust. So we know at least two seasons had gone by because when the locusts come, there's something else in bloom that would have been, that would have been destroyed by the hail had it been in bloom when the hail was there. So that's, that's an indication that at least for um, hail and locusts, it was a few months in between. So that, it, you know, it could have been a two-year process. I don't know that we know. Does anybody have anything that would speak. I don't know that we know, um, but I, but I, and as a kid, I thought, you know, this is, this is three weeks. As an adult, I think this is probably a, a year-long process, maybe six months, maybe three years, uh, and that would go along with what you, they had time to get some new stuff, some new livestock. Maybe they traded for it. Maybe they bought it. Maybe the babies were spared and they grow up. I don't know the answer to that. Or they traded it from the, or st- stole it from the Israelites. I mean, they're their slaves, so I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. That's a good question.
I do know on the hail, um, and this is how we know some of the livestock was spared based on what Jerry's saying, that now the Egyptians who feared the Lord and obeyed his command also got spared. If they brought their servants in and they brought their livestock in, the hail did not damage them. And this is the first time we see the opportunity for the Egyptians to be spared. Um, this is also at, at the hell where Moses talks to Pharaoh and says, God says, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is where God specifically tells Pharaoh in chapter 9, I brought you to this spot, made you powerful so that I can bring you down. That's where we know that God raised Pharaoh up to be in this position for this purpose. So that his name may be proclaimed. So number eight after the hail is the locust. Okay. Um, so I'm told that the hail destroyed the flax and the barley based on the season would be different than when the locust comes and eats the wheat and the emmer based on that season. So that's how we know some time several months have passed there. Um, Pharaoh promises to let the people go. He changes his mind. And then number nine is darkness. Darkness for three days. Pharaoh says, make it go away. And then he tells Moses, if I ever see your face again, I'm going to kill you. And Moses says, one more is coming. And after this one, you're going to change your mind. And that's where we're going to stop right there. Um, We'll talk about this 10th plague, the lead up to it, and, and its implications next week. As a reminder, the kids will be coming out at 745 tonight.